so when, um, back at the end of November, December, when I was thinking about what we were going to be looking at for these three months and felt very much that God <coughs> wanted us to spend a little time in some wisdom and that we would look at Proverbs and then we're going to move on to look at Ecclesiastes next month. Uh, one of the things that I wrote down on, on my notes was, um, was, can I get the Good Samaritan in here somewhere? So we're going to today. And it kind of fits, honest, it really does. I did explain this right at the beginning of the service to Wendy, and she went, oh, because I hadn't really explained what I was doing with it today. The sayings of King Lemuel. Put your hands up if your mother ever uttered something inspired to you. There we go. Somebody did. An inspired utterance. What a fantastic thing to start a passage with. An inspired utterance his mother taught him. <clears throat> what this inspired utterance goes on to, to, to tell Lemuel as a king is quite interesting. Um, we could look at, at, at all of this in depth and, and just question whether many of our rulers that we have around us follow this kind of inspires ad advice about how they behave and where their focuses are. I wonder how many of our, our leaders in this country at the moment could perhaps do with a little less drink and a bit more focus on what's right and what's good for the nation. What I really want us to focus on today is the idea of what God's wisdom... This is bouncing lot of echo coming back. Can you hear me okay? Good, fine. What this passage has to say to us about wisdom care, about godly wisdom and how we, we take godly wisdom to shape our attitudes of care for people around us and in society around us. At the end of this passage it says this, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is godly wisdom. And it's something I think we need to really take on board as church today in a world and in a society where that isn't true of our worldly governments and worldly agents and it isn't a reality for very many people. Now we could <coughs> rightly say that what's said in this passage isn't actually anything new. It's not something we've not heard before because this concept of justice and equality is written throughout the Bible. We could go all over the Bible and find passages. It's at the heart of the message of Jesus, God's message of love and grace. If you look at Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, it says this, But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. In Amos chapter 5, let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In Micah chapter 6, perhaps one of the most well-known passages about justice he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, 
and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In Isaiah chapter 1, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, please plead the cause of the widow. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' words, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The truth is, I don't need to tell you that God wants us to be people of grace and mercy. We know what God calls us to do. We know what God calls us to be as Christians. We understand how God is calling us to live in our world. Is that true? This isn't the first time you've heard this, is it? Is it? Really? This is not a new thought. So why is it that still there are countless tens, hundreds of thousands of people across our nations and across our world who are still victims of persecution and injustice and abuse and of oppression. And the truth is that we don't see the church active in opposing these things enough. Why is that true when we know what God calls us to be and when we know how he calls us to live? That seems to be a problem. This piece of godly wisdom tells us that if we are godly wise, then we will protect those who can't protect themselves. It tells us that defenders must, uh, believers, sorry, must defend those who can't defend themselves. It's not really an option if we seek to live under God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. Because this is the truth. When we let God's wisdom work in us when we let it rule in our hearts and in our heads and our minds then we can only see the world through God's eyes and if I ask you today to look at the world through God's eyes how do you think God feels close your eyes just for a moment for me And just think how God feels when he looks at his world, his creation, and when he sees what we see. It's not a good picture, is it? Really. So why am I going to talk to you about the Good Samaritan? Let's just talk, let's just look at this story. Just trust me and we'll, we'll get to where I think God wants us to go. This is a story Jesus told. We, we, we know it as the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus describes a situation where a Jewish man has been abandoned by the side of the road. He's been beaten and robbed, left for dead. And the first part of this story that surprises us is the reaction of the priest and the reaction of the temple assistant. Would that be true? We kind of look at this and we read this and we wonder, well, why on earth would they behave like that? 
find it interesting that Jesus is responding to a question from an expert in religious law. And that's the context of this story. An expert in law has asked him a question. And Jesus describes a situation where the priest and the assistant, they, they travel on the other side of the road. They avoid what's going on. These are men who would be fully conversant in Jewish law. They wouldn't have known a little bit about it. This is their life. This is their calling. This is everything they know and do. Why, then, do they walk on the other side? Well, Jewish law actually prohibited a priest from touching a dead body or even touching somebody who was dying. Because in Jewish law, that would contaminate them. That would stop them being holy. And the priest's got a job to do. And his job, and part of being his job, is that he's got to be ceremonially clean. Touching them would have stopped that being true. Now, it could be argued that that's why the priest decided not to, not to touch the man, not to get involved. Could argue that he thought, I've got a job to do at the temple, and if I, if I do this, I can't do what I have to do for God not 100% clear that that's strictly the same for the, the temple assistant, but you could stretch it that far. You could say, that maybe he looked at the situation and thought, well, I've got something to do for God at the temple, and, and if I get involved in this, that's going to get in the way of, of, of the things I'm supposed to do and the law and the rules. So you could say that from the point of view of the law, actually what these men did was the right thing perhaps but we could accept actually the passage does very clearly suggest that they weren't going to the temple they were traveling away from the temple but whichever way they were traveling I think we get an image of two men whose lives and attitudes and eyes and hearts are wrapped around their understanding of the law. They chose to respond in the way that the law would lead them to. <clears throat> they saw this man and the situation he was in, and they both deliberately chose to walk on by and ignore him. See, these men were locked into a certain way of thinking about the law, about their relationship with God, was all about the rules and the system and the structure. Any concept that they might have had about God's grace and God's mercy was outweighed by making sure they followed the rules, that they did what the rules said. Anyway, they went on their way, and along came a Samaritan. I'm sure you all understand, because you've heard me say it many times, and I'm sure you've heard other people say that the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get on very well. You know that, yeah? Uh, let's be honest, it's an understatement. They hated each other. Truly, in this passage, it says they despised each other. This was not just a little bit of disagreement. They loathed each other. I read in, in one of the commentaries when I was putting this together that there's evidence in some writings of the time 
that one of the habits of Samaritan men, young Samaritan men, was to collect animal carcasses and bones and throw them over the temple walls into the temple to try and defile it to get in the way of the, the temple practices that were going on in there. They didn't like each other. They hated each other. They despised each other. The hatred here, in, in one of the commentaries, is kind of compared to that kind of enmity that, that existed in Northern Ireland between Catholic and Protestant. That can, you know, we, we're not even sure why, really, why the Jews and the Samaritans really hated each other. And there's a sense that by the time Jesus is telling this story, most of them probably didn't even know why they hated each other anymore. It's just that's what you did. And yet, Jesus tells a story where a Samaritan stops to help this Jewish man. And for the people hearing that story, that would have been startling, shocking. Just the idea of it would have shaken them. And what we know about the Samaritans is that they still followed the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They still um, adhered to the laws held in those, in the Pentateuch. And so this Samaritan, we can assume, I think <coughs> sensibly, was as aware of the rules and aware of the laws as had been the priest and the temple assistant. And yet, we're told that he didn't walk on by. He acted with compassion. Something overcame this man. And he set aside any concerns that he had for himself. Bearing in mind, this is really in the wilderness where bandits were operating and could have been just as likely that they might have attacked him as they had the man before. He set aside concern for himself. He set aside any concern about what the law might say or what his friends might say or anything because he recognized a need he saw a need in front of him and he responded to it deliberately and at personal cost to himself See, I think that the actions that Jesus describes in this encounter are deliberately intended to move those people that were listening to that story 2,000 years ago and those of us today, from an attitude of law and rules and systems to an attitude of love. And that's because that's what God's grace does. God's grace moves us from law to love. That's such an important truth to acknowledge and to realize. And what we see enacted in this passage, in this story, is actually a mirror of the story of God and you, and God and me, and God and each one of us. It's a story of how God doesn't walk on by when he sees us on the road, when he sees us in the dark places of our lives. He steps in at personal cost to himself. He sets aside what the law says or what the rules say and he makes a way for compassion and through compassion and grace for love to win. God has seen our distress. God knows where we are. 
and yet he doesn't limit himself with regality and an enormous, enormous cost. At the greatest cost possible, he stepped in and he acted deliberately. Love and mercy poured into our life. Grace conquers hatred. Love overcomes law. That's godly wisdom. That we are called to think like God thinks, to see like God sees, to care like God cares, to be wise like God is wise. This story of the God Good Samaritan, it doesn't tell us that the law is wrong. Okay, it doesn't, it shows us that we need to go beyond the law beyond the rules and the regulations, if we're going to be people filled with godly wisdom, ministering grace and love into the world around us in the same way that God has done for us. See, Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill the law. When we act in godly wisdom, with grace and mercy, what we're doing is we're fulfilling God's law through our actions, through our compassion, through love. See, if we stick with the law, by the standards of the law, we deserve nothing. We don't deserve God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace. We don't deserve his help every day in our life. Yet he has satisfied every requirement he has fulfilled everything and daily ministers grace and love in our lives. <clears throat> and the thing about grace and love, God's grace and love, is this. It's all about him. It's all about his activity. It's all about what he does. They're born out of, rooted in his desire for us to be in relationship with him. Personal, intimate relationship. But they go way beyond just him feeling something special about us. It's more than just a feeling. It's action. Now, I'm not advocating that you go out of here today and start saying, David said we can break all the rules as long as we love people. But I am saying that we have to be deliberate about being followers of Jesus. We have to be deliberate in our discipleship and that means deliberate about ministering grace and love with godly wisdom. See, the priest and the temple assistant, they could have chosen to help the man. Sure, if they'd been travelling to Jerusalem and not to Jericho, they could have said, okay, I'm going to be late for work. Maybe I'm going to have to take a week off and I'm going to have to get cleansed properly again and it's all going to be sorted, but I'm going to save this man's life because this man is a child of God. They could have done that, but they chose not to. They believed that the best way they could serve God was just through the law, the rituals in the temple. They thought that's where they needed to be and they missed this point. Jesus had broken out of the temple 
He wasn't there. God wasn't in that temple anymore. And they were still locked in temple systems, and yet God had broken in. God was all over the world. And that's where he needs us to be, all over the world. The problem with the law is that we can never satisfy it ourselves. We can never meet the, the requirements and fulfill it in ourselves. That's where love and grace conquer everything, through God's gift of Jesus. Because of Jesus, the law is satisfied Grace is poured out and love wins. See, that, that's, that's the story. Love wins. Law loses. If we try to, to just do, do the law stuff, we're going to lose. But if we love, like God has loved, with godly wisdom, then love wins every time. Worldly wisdom would have us look after our own interests. Worldly wisdom would say, I'm not getting involved. I might get mugged. I might get in trouble. I might be late. And whatever it is, worldly wisdom would have us walk on by. Not get involved in the problems of other people. Look after yourself. Godly wisdom calls us to a completely different response. Godly wisdom calls us to let go of the law and embrace grace and love always grace and love what on earth are we talking about grace and love I want to encourage you to be people who leave here today determined deliberately going out there saying I'm going to minister grace and love because that's what God has done for me but what are we talking about when we talk about grace and love well, grace really ought to be something that needs no explanation and what I mean by that is Without it, we're nothing. Without God's grace, we wouldn't be here this morning. It's something that should be familiar to every one of us. If we look up grace in the dictionary, what we get is references to things like elegant poise or posture, goodwill to dignify something, or the way of addressing a duke or an archbishop. But godly grace goes way beyond any of those definitions. Grace is the free and undeserved favour of God. You don't deserve it. It is everything that God has done for each one of us through Jesus Christ. Everything. It's everything that has enabled us to find ourselves forgiven and once again in that wholesome relationship with God. can't buy it, we can't earn it, we can't deserve it, we can't work for it, we can't find its fullness anywhere other than in Jesus. And everything about grace, all of it, is from God. All we can do is just receive it when we acknowledge and receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour in our lives. Romans chapter 3 says this, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace, 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians chapter 1 it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Everything is about God. In 1779, John Newton said God's grace was amazing. And we've been singing that song since then. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. In 2003, uh, Geraldine Latty described it as amazing, astounding, extravagant grace. We sometimes sing that here. That's what we're on about. Now, I don't want to put myself in the same sort of league as Geraldine Latty or John Newton. But when I was putting this message together and I was thinking about God's grace, and in my head I got this phrase, it's all about God's grace. Now I've got teenage children and a couple of years ago there was a song by a singer called Megan Trainer. Do you know it? It's all about that bass, about that bass. No trouble. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. But I sat there and all I could get in my head was it's all about God's grace, it's about God's grace, it's about God's grace. And I couldn't get it out of my head, so I rewrote the whole song. <coughs> all about God's grace. I'll teach it to the worship group one day. I'm not singing it, believe me. There'd be no grace in that. It's all about God's grace. And what about love? Love, I think, is a bit more complicated. And I think that because I believe love in the 21st century has come to mean so many things, and many of them are not wholesome or good. Oxford English Dictionary describes love as an intense feeling, a strong feeling of affection. And in the definitions that I could find, it's all about feeling. But actually, the point about God's love is it's, it's not just about feelings. It's more than that. In the Bible, there are four different types of love described to us. Storge, philos, eros, and agape. And in this story that Jesus tells, it's agape love that he talks about when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And agape love is a love that is selfless and unconditional and when we love with this kind of love what we're doing is we're seeking always the needs of others seeking to give ourselves that others can gain and receive what they need and the most extravagant example we have of that is Jesus himself that God gave of himself because we needed that action we needed Jesus the willingness of God give up his son on our behalf. God's love is active. It's action. It's demonstrated through that deliberate decision of Jesus going to the cross but of then dying and coming back to life again. God's love is deliberate. It's love in action. And now these three remain. Faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Grace, it's God's deliberate act of mercy and forgiveness shown to each one of us in Jesus. And love, 
is God's deliberate activity through Jesus of bringing us back into that relationship with him. We live in a world that wants us to believe that stuff happens by accident. And yet my personal experience of God is that there's nothing accidental about him. Everything he does, everything he purposes, is always purposeful, always deliberate. And when I look around me, I see evidence of this purposeful, deliberate nature throughout the earth. We have a deliberate God. And if we allow godly wisdom to rule our lives, then we're going to be deliberate too. And one of the most deliberate things we can do is search for God's way, way of doing things. And if we take this story that Jesus tells about the Samaritan as an example for our lives, then our lives will look like this. They will show no prejudice. Our concerns will not be limited just to those that we know and like, but they'll be extended to everybody, even our enemies or those that count us as their enemies. No prejudice. Our lives will be more about, about more than just feelings towards people. They will be active and they will meet the needs of people right where they are. Feeling sorry isn't enough. It's not enough to see someone in need or, or to see a story about a situation and just feel sorry about it. That's, that's not enough. That's not what God did. He feels sorry for each of us when we're separated from him. But he didn't leave it at just going, oh, I feel really sorry for you. He stepped in. And we have to too. There has to be more than just feeling sorry. And if we take this example of what it is to live with godly wisdom in our lives, then our lives will be sacrificial. There is a cost involved in following Jesus. There is a cost involved in ministering grace and love to people in the world today. It might be our time. It might be our energy. It might be our money. It might be our emotions. In truth, it's likely to be all of them. And it's likely to be more than we'd like it to be. It will cost us to live like Jesus. This is where godly wisdom leads us. This is where it leaves us with a decision. How am I going to live my life? This is what ministering grace and love in the world is all about what it's going to look like in the world and it has to look like that doesn't it because it's what God did if we want to know what our lives should look like then we just have to look and say well what did God do it's exactly what God did he loves you and me without prejudice he knows more about us than we wish he knew and he still chooses to love us more than just a feeling he has for us. It's action. It takes action to change our lives, to rescue us, to lift us up. And it cost him everything. 
we really are going to live with godly wisdom, then we will choose to do exactly what God has done for us.